Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series through the Gospel of John. We, uh, we started this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so this morning we continue in John chapter 1. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is from John 1, 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. A number of years ago, I read an observation that has stuck with me. The author John Gardner, in a book that he wrote uh, on writing, so a book about writing written for other aspiring authors, said that there's only two types of stories in the world. That in all of, all of literature, you can boil it down to there's two basic types of stories. A person goes on a journey and a stranger comes to town. That basically every story at some level uh, comes down to one of those two plots. A person goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Now you can do what I do after having read that. Every story I come to, I try to discern, is this a, this a person goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town? Up to this point in the Gospel of John, The gospel has been a stranger comes to town kind of story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Baptist sees him and says, behold, the lamb of God, right? This is no ordinary stranger. This stranger is a a heavenly stranger, a divine stranger, a, a stranger in which heaven has invaded earth. A stranger has come to town. But in today's passage, we see that the gospel Uh, always entails that the stranger that comes to town's story has to become a person goes on a journey story to be full. And that's what we see happening here, that the stranger who's come into town, this Jesus of Nazareth, 
calls five people to go on a journey with him. And we see here the first five people of what will be the church. The first five followers who leave everything, who live the, lead, leave the life that they don't, the only life they'd ever known, to abandon it to follow Jesus. Right, it's five by a little later in the gospel, it'll be 12 men that are following Jesus. By the end of, the New Te- by the end of uh, Jesus' life, it'll be several hundred probably that are following him around. By the end of the New Testament, there'll be several thousand that are calling themselves Christians, followers of Jesus. Today, they think it's about 2.2 billion people that are following Jesus. And yet here it starts with five very, very ordinary guys. Five fishermen, the, the, the town that they are all from, Bethsaida, literally in Hebrew means fish house. Say what you want about Jacksonville and how it smells sometimes, but at least we're not called fish house town, right? That's a, that's a, a very ordinary blue collar fishing town. And from there come these five men who become the first followers of Jesus. And we see here that this is, the gospel always calls us to go, calls us to leave what we're familiar with, to be the person who goes on a journey of following Jesus, the journey that, that, that is becoming one of his disciples, somebody who becomes an apprentice to Jesus, a learner under Jesus, learning his way of life, his way of faith. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning real briefly is just what it means, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We see that it's an invitation. If you notice the, the, the words that happen over and over again in this passage are come and see, come and see. And it says elsewhere, they came and they saw. So the, the discipleship life starts with receiving an invitation from Jesus, from this word made flesh. He invites us. What does he invite us to? Well, we're gonna see in this passage that he invites, that the invitation to discipleship is first an invitation to a person, an invitation to transformation, and then an invitation to a mission. First, it's an invitation to a person. I love the way that Jesus starts this dialogue. So John the Baptist points some of his followers to Jesus. Again, he says, behold the Lamb of God. This is the the same sermon that we heard John the Baptist give in the the passage we looked at last week. So if you ever feel like my my sermons uh, start to feel repetitive or that I'm always talking about the same things, at least I vary it a little bit. John the Baptist, twice in a row, behold the Lamb of God. Then the next day, behold the Lamb of God. He just keeps pointing people in the same words to Jesus who's right there with them. And they come to Jesus and then Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? I think it's beautiful that in, in the gospel of John, these are the very first words that Jesus speaks. Jesus's public ministry starts not with a declarative statement, not with some pronouncement. He leaves that to others that his first words recorded in the gospel is a question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? And in this question, I think Jesus really cuts to the heart of human motivations. That our lives, every single one of our lives, we're seeking something, right? Our lives are not just the sum total of our choices or our behaviors or even usually our well-thought-out beliefs but our lives are driven by what we think we need, by what we desire, by what we think will bring us fullness or happiness or joy. 
right? It might be family, it might be money, it might be friends, it might be reputation, but we're all driven at a deep level by what we seek, by what we, by what we believe will bring completeness and wholeness to our lives. And so when these men come to Jesus, he asks them, what do you seek? It's a question that exposes them. It's a question that exposes each one of us when you really wrestle with the question, what am I seeking in my life? What is the thing that animates all of my choices, all of my actions, the ways that I spend my time, the ways that I spend my money? If you were to look at my life, what is it that I'm driven by? What is it that I'm seeking after? It's a question that's designed, I think, to expose these men to get them thinking about what is it that we're really after. It's reminiscent, you know, the the first question that God asks in the Bible is in the Garden of of Eden, right after Adam and Eve have sinned and rebelled against him and they go and they hide in the bushes, thinking you can hide from God in bushes. And he says, where are you? Where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where they are. It's not because God couldn't see behind the bush. It's he's inviting them to expose themselves. He's inviting them to step out of their shame and out of their hiding and to tell the truth about themselves. And so here's Jesus. What are you seeking? Inviting these guys to look at their hearts and to ask, what what is it that we're looking for? What is it that's driving us? You know, throughout the gospel of John, we'll see that people don't always seek Jesus for the right reasons. Right in John chapter six, there's a, there's a famous story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Uh, I won't spoil the whole thing. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. And as you might expect, this draws an interest. This draws a crowd. Somebody who can miraculously take a few loaves of bread and a few fish and feed 5,000 people. So all of a sudden, this crowd starts following him. He can't get away from them. He goes across the other side of a lake. He still can't get away from them. And when they come to him, he says, you're seeking after me, not because you desire me, what he calls uh, the true bread from heaven, the one who's come to provide real and abundant life for all people. You're coming just because your stomachs are full. You're coming because you were hungry and I fed you. You're coming because your imagination is captured by uh, this wonder that you've seen. But you're not really seeking me. You're just seeking the, the wonder, you're seeking the miracle, you're seeking what I can do for you more than you are seeking the the thing that the sign was meant to point you towards. And so Jesus acknowledges that you can be seeking him, but seeking him for the right reason, for the wrong reasons. We do this when we seek God, not for himself, but what what he can give for us. If you you embark on a relationship with God thinking that, oh, you know what, I need help. Uh, Maybe if I give money and pray to God, he'll help my finances. Right? Or maybe if I uh, start going to church, he'll help my marriage. Or maybe if I start going to church, he'll help me get clean and sober. Right? All, all of those things could happen. Right? God, as he changes our lives, often does change our relationships and heal us. God, as he fills us from the inside, often does break our addictions. But Jesus, in asking the question, what are you seeking? Presses past all of that and asks, are you really seeking me? Are you really after me? And so they answer. I love, I love this little exchange so much. Jesus asked, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? This is like, a, it's like they're dancing around each other a little bit. You know, what, what are you seeking? Uh, I don't know, where are you staying? They're, they're kind of getting, getting at each other a little bit. It seems that the, fir- the first time I read this, it seems like they're avoiding the question. 
right? It seems like they don't wanna, they don't wanna really go there. They don't wanna really look at their hearts and ask, answer his question. So they ask, they ask another question. Rabbi, where are you staying? But I think the more that I've sat with this, the more that I've prayed through it and thought about it, I think that their question is exactly the right question. Their question shows what it is that they're after. Because they don't ask Jesus when he asks what they're seeking. They don't ask, well, what are you teaching? What do you, what do, what do you have to say? They don't even ask, they don't even answer, what are you doing? Right, what are you gonna do? They ask, where are you staying? Where, where are you resting? Where can we be with you? Where's your home? Where can we be at home with you? They show in their follow-up question that they're seeking the thing they should be seeking, which is to stay with Jesus, which is to be in a relationship with Jesus. Right, of all of the people who seek Jesus for all the wrong reasons, they show here that they're not simply looking for a teacher, although they call him rabbi. They're not just looking for somebody to fill up their minds and give them some new ideas or some new ways to live, to give them a new theological grid. They're not looking for that primarily. They show they're not even looking for help living their lives. They're not looking for moral improvement. They don't ask, what should we do? They're not looking like so many people in the day were for a, uh, for a political savior, for a Messiah who would come and cast off their Roman oppression and help see, uh, set them up as an independent Israelite nation. They show they're not looking for that. They show they're seeking where he's staying. This is a huge idea in the Gospel of John. Remember the way that the prologue starts. That the word became flesh and dwelt or made his home, made his life here with us. And these men now show that they are looking to dwell with the God who dwells with them. They're looking to dwell with him. Jesus later on is gonna, is gonna say that, uh, that life with him is about abiding with him. That apart from, a, from abiding in Christ, we can do nothing. And so they're saying, Jesus, we wanna abide with you. We wanna live with you. We wanna stay where you're staying. The discipleship, though it does have, there's elements of discipleship that are about learning new things, learning to view God and our world and ourselves rightly. There's aspects of it that are about changing the way that we live and our moral grid. But at its heart, discipleship is a call to a person. It's a call to the man, Jesus Christ, who God, the gospel of John tells us is the place where God dwells. He is the place where to live with Jesus is to live with God himself. We see it here at the end of our reading where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is a clear allusion by Jesus to an Old Testament story where Jacob was given a vision uh, where heaven opened up and he saw a ladder. And on that ladder, angels were coming to and, to and fro, going from heaven to earth and back again. Right? Jacob was given this, this vision of heaven opened, heaven and earth touching, and angels going back and forth. Jacob, at that place where he received that vision, named it Bethel or, or the house of God. God's house, the place where heaven and earth meet, where man and God can come into communion with each other. And so Jesus is clearly saying here, I am that place. I am the place where heaven and earth are meet, that place where the boundary between the two is thin and where men and women and God can dwell together. And so what are you seeking? Where are you staying? The question comes to us, 
What are you seeking in your life? What are you seeking? What do you believe will give you fullness and happiness and joy and life? The message of Jesus here is that if you're seeking anything else than to dwell with God himself, anything else than than union and communion with God through Jesus, that you're seeking the wrong thing. That quite frankly, you're seeking something that if you get it, will never truly make you happy, will never truly fill you up because you were made for God and only he can fill you. So first, it's a, it's a relationship. It's a call to a person. Secondly, we see that in that, that person, in that relationship with that person, the offer of discipleship, the invitation of discipleship is an invitation to be transformed. It's an invitation to have your entire life changed. We see that in this passage uh, through a couple of things. First, we see, that they, we see it in the ways that they're slowly coming to an awareness of who Jesus really is. Right? The first thing that needs to be transformed for these five men is their vision, is their, their, uh, their awareness of just who Jesus is. Right? We see that their, uh, their names for Jesus escalate. In verse 38, they call him rabbi, which means teacher. There were, uh, there were dozens and dozens of rabbis in, ancient, in Israel. It simply meant a, a religious teacher, somebody who taught the law. So they start off by calling him a rabbi. Then by the end of verse 41, uh, they're calling him the Messiah, right? The one who was promised to come and redeem and restore Israel. And then by the end, by verse 48, they're calling him the son of God, right? You see the way that that like like stair steps, their, their vision of who Jesus is, is gradually dawning on them. Slowly, their picture is starting to open up where they came to him thinking he was a Messiah. I'm sorry, thinking he was a rabbi. They start to realize, oh, this is more than just any rabbi. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And then by the end, it's, oh man, this is, this is more than we thought the Messiah would be. This is the very son of God. This is a divine Messiah. This is, this is God himself coming towards us, coming into our world. You know, and very often, this is the journey of discipleship. This is what it means, right? What was Jesus' invitation to them? Come and see. Right? Come and see. Come and see who I am. Come and see if I really am who I say that I am. You know, oftentimes we think as we, uh, as we do that, as we do what Jesus asked, as we come and see, as we come to the Bible, as we come to try to understand who Jesus is, oftentimes we come and we believe that until all of our questions are answered, we can't become Jesus' followers. Until we know exactly who he is, until we know exactly how all of our questions about the Bible line up, until we understand exactly uh, how the Old Testament and the New Testament all hang together, until all of our doubts are answered, we can't become his followers. And yet we see here for these men that, that it was about trusting Jesus, even in the midst of their lack of knowledge, even in the midst of their still foggy vision of who he is, when they come and they see, Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and live with me and I'll open your eyes. I'll show you who I am. Just trust me and start to follow me. Trust me and, and, and come and see if I am who I say I am, if I am who the gospel claims that I am. You know, Nathaniel, uh, one of the, these first followers came with lots of questions, yeah. right? His first question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, I know Nazareth. I know the kind of people that are from Nazareth and there ain't no Messiahs coming from, from Nazareth. 
And yet still he comes. He comes and he investigates Jesus. He comes and he talks with Jesus. And in that talking with Jesus, Jesus reveals his power. He reveals his foreknowledge. He reveals all of who he is to him. And so if that's you, if you're here and you're bringing a whole boatload of questions with you about the whole Jesus thing, about church, about, about what we believe as Christians, the encouragement from Jesus is to come and to see, to not wait until you have all of the answers figured out, but to keep coming to him, right? I, I can think of no better. In fact, I've, I've had many friends and people that I've been in a relationship with who start to ask questions about Christianity. And you know where I te- always tell them to start in the Bible? It's in the gospel of John. It's in the book that we're studying uh, over the course of this year. And so if you've got questions, just keep coming. Come and see. Spend time with us as we look at the life of Jesus. And so it is an invitation to have our, our view of Jesus expanded. But also discipleship changes not just our view of Jesus, but our view of ourselves. Look at what uh, I love this interaction with Peter in verse 42. He brought, he brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of God. I mean, sorry, no, that's me. Uh, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, right? So he looks at Simon, uh, one of these early followers, and says, I'm gonna change your name to Cephas or Peter, uh, which means the rock. Uh, In the other gospels, it tells us on this rock, on Peter's leadership, he's gonna build his entire church on Peter's message. And yet, in the gospel, in the gospel of John, Peter doesn't look especially rock-like. Uh, especially, even by the end, Peter is impetuous. Uh, he's alternatingly kind of hot-headed and cowardly. So he'll, he'll pick fights, but then he'll back away. But the gospel of John ends with him denying Jesus three times as he heads to his crucifixion. So Peter, left to himself, is cowardly. He's angry. And yet Jesus looks at him and he looks past all that. And he says, I'm gonna change your name to rock because I see something in you. I see not something that's just in in and of yourself. I see who I'm gonna make you into by my grace. And I'm gonna make you into somebody who's courageous, who's strong, who's capable of leading this new church and this mission. I'm gonna see you and I'm gonna define you and I'm gonna rename you by what I'm gonna make you into. Every disciple of Jesus, every disciple is redeemed from something and is redeemed for something, right? We're all saved from our sin. We're redeemed out of a past. We're redeemed out of a character that's, uh, that's, that's often erring, that's addicted, that's prone to anger, that's prone to cowardice and lust and greed and all the same stuff that was in Peter. We're transformed and we're called out of something and we're called towards something. Right? We're called towards a transformed life as God's sons and his daughters. A life that's capable of real love for God and for our neighbors. A life that's capable of, of the fruit of the spirit of, of gentleness and patience and kindness and self-control, all these things. And it's our, it's our nature as sinful human beings to define ourselves more by what we've been, trans, by what we've been redeemed out of than what we've been redeemed for. Right? That's the way that shame works. Shame always leaves us calling ourselves by our old names, calling ourselves by our past addictions, calling ourselves by the, the names that others have called us in our lives, calling ourselves by the names that, that we've called ourselves in the midst of our, our self-condemnation. And yet Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're, you're, you're Peter. You're no longer Simon, you're Peter. I want you to be defined by the one that you're facing towards, Jesus, 
and the future that you're facing towards, a transformed life. To be a Christian is to have a vision of your own life transformed, to recognize that you are called not to remain the same, but to be remade into a new image of God's beloved son and daughter, to be remade into a new kind of person, brought into a new family around Jesus. So it's a call to transformation. And then finally, discipleship is an invitation to a mission. Right, look, there's, there's, it's unavoidable in this passage that one of the clear themes is something that is immensely unpopular, uh, both in the world outside the church and in the church itself, uh, which is the, the, the notion of evangelism, right? The world doesn't like evangelism uh, because how arrogant do you have to be uh, to think that not only do you have a relationship with God, but that you have a way to a relationship with God that you're gonna share with other people. That, that seems in our world today the height of arrogance, seems the height of self-righteousness. I feel it even, and I think this is one of the reasons why as a church it kind of makes us cringe to even talk about it, is you feel all of that anytime you try to start a conversation with anybody in your life about Jesus, right? Oh man, this is gonna make this relationship so terribly awkward. I'm gonna come across so wrong. They're gonna have questions and I'm not gonna know the answers or a normal relationship is now gonna feel really, really awkward. Um, I'm gonna come across as arrogant. And so we, so we don't talk about it. So we, don't, we never address it. And yet it's clear in this passage that what we see is a movement of evangelism, right? The first evangelist we see in this passage is John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. Look, there's, there he is, there's Jesus. Right, so that's one type of evangelism we see here. Evangelism simply means telling the good news. So here's one type, it comes from a preacher. Right, that's throughout the history of the church, God has used the preaching of his word to share the faith. And so here's one type of evangelism. Here's a preacher telling people about Jesus and some people come to him. But then after that, it works through these other people, these ordinary people, first through a family, right? Andrew goes and gets his brother and brings him to hear Jesus. And then later it happens through friends, right? As they go and get Nathaniel and bring him to meet Jesus. And so it's clear that just, just preaching, just preachers aren't the only ones who are meant to be telling others, telling their friends, telling their family to come and see Jesus, to come and get to know this Jesus that they've met. And so I think there is a way, in fact, I think the gospel uh, requires a way that invites others to come and see Jesus, but does it in a way that's devoid of arrogance and self-righteousness, right? Because it's an invitation to come and see somebody other than yourself, one that you believe has the power of life and death, the one who has the power of grace and salvation. You know, one of my favorite uh, little extrapolations on this uh, is from Penn Jillette. Penn is a, uh, an outspoken atheist. He's the if you've ever seen Penn and Teller, the two musicians, uh, musicians, magicians, Penn is the, the tall one that talks. Uh, and then he's got the other uh, little guy, Teller, that doesn't talk. Well, uh, Penn Jillette is a pretty outspoken atheist. And one day he, uh, a, a fan of his at a show in Las Vegas, uh, waited outside of his dressing room uh, for hours for him to come out. And then he walked up to him and kind of nervously, knowing that he was an atheist, handed him a Bible and said, hey, here's this. I know this isn't what you believe, but I hope, that, I hope that maybe one day you'll read it. It's really important to me. And here's what Gillette in a blog uh, said about this. He said, I've always, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize is just another big word for evangelize. 
one big word for another one. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? He goes on to offer this example. If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you, that this is more important than that. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I don't believe it. But if I did believe it, I would want people to share it with me, (laughs) right? I don't believe it, but if it's true, people need to know this. They need to know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that there's an opportunity for everlasting life. So this calls us, uh, you know, the, the invitation from Jesus to come and see always comes to us and then it comes through us to others. It's an invitation that, that requires us and, and invites us to invite others to come and to see Jesus. You know, I remember uh, I used to work with a ministry called Young Life. We have some, some folks here who, who serve with Young Life. It's, a, it's an outreach ministry to high school students. And one of the things we do with high school students is we take them to a summer camp where they hear the message of the gospel. They hear just, they have nothing else to focus on, just the beauty of God's creation and the fun they're having there and the relationship with their leaders. And they hear the message of the gospel. And I remember having a kid who was, uh, was, was had never really given Christianity much of a hearing, who came to believe the gospel uh, at that week of camp. He came, Jesus just invaded his life. He believed the good news and he was changed. And I remember him coming back like literally minutes from having uh, begun a new life with Jesus. And he came up to me and he goes, Dave, Dave, do you have any quarters? Do you have any quarters? Now for for the younger of you, um, there used to be something called pay phones. Uh, And to make a call when you weren't at your home, you had to use a quarter in order to pay money to buy a phone call. And so he said, Dave, Dave, do you have any quarters? And I said, man, I got a few, but what, what do you need quarters for? He says, I've, I've, got a call, I've got a list. I've got to call my mom and dad. They need to know about this. And I've got to call my sister. Then I've got to call my friends. They need to know about this. And as I think back on him and that joy, and then I think about my own heart, I think what happened to that kind of energy? That kind of, do you have any quarters? I've got to tell everybody I know. A sense of aliveness, the sense of this is real and it's good news and people have to know. Usually what I find is that my own heart, my own aliveness to the gospel, the sense that it's real to me is directly connected to how willing and excited I am to talk to others about it. When I find myself just unwilling to risk the awkwardness, unwilling to risk the estrangement, unwilling to risk uh, the courage to talk to someone about Jesus, It's usually, if I'm honest, because he ceased to be as real to me and as alive to me and as vital in my life uh, as he should be. It's a great barometer of your heart because when Jesus, when you meet Jesus, when you answer his invitation to come and see, it does become a give me all your quarters. I've got to tell everybody I know about this incredible good news. 